You are listening to the Grow Law Firm Podcast, where each guest shares actionable, practical ideas with you on how to get more clients, expand your reach, and grow your law firm's revenue and profit. Here's your host, Sasha Burson. Welcome to Grow Law Firm Podcast. I have an amazing guest with me here today. Her name is Brooke Lively, and Brooke is the co-founder of Cathedral Capital, a firm that, in among other things, does CFO work for law firms. Brooke, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sasha. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. And this, as I have shared earlier just with you, is an atypical journey. Typically, a team member of mine looks for people to invite to the podcast, and I play no role in it. In this case, I actually read your article. I believe it was an attorney at work. And I liked it so much. And I also thought that some of the things you said there were, I did not agree with completely, but I'm like, I got to have her on the podcast. So here we are. Goody, let's debate. Amazing. I think the debate will come a few minutes into the podcast episode. Right now, I want to ask you a silly question. And that is, what does a CFO do for law firms? Because my assumption is, and I get to speak with incredible number of lawyers, one on one, every single year. I assume that if I asked 90% of them, if they knew what CFOs do for law firms, I would get a blank stare. Yeah. And I, and I think that's really typical. So a CFO is really a partner with the owner or owners of the firm. It's someone that helps share the vision of where you want the firm to go and helps you get from where you are now to where you want to be. They do the strategy work that as attorneys may not come naturally to you. They deal with the business side of a law firm in a way that you guys weren't taught how to do. They they deal with the math part. I mean, let's face it, Sasha, you go to law school and the math class in law school is what is one third of any number, right? That's law school math. Now, if you take advanced law school math, it is what is 40% of any number because the assumption is that you've now gone to trial on a contingency case. And I do have a client that if it gets appealed, he goes to 45%. So he's got like PhD level lawyer math. What we do with your financials is similar to what an attorney does with a brief. An attorney can take a brief and read it and know everything they need to know about a case. As a CFO, we can take your financials and it tells us everything about your firm. And what it really tells us is where we need to dig further. Where are there inefficiencies? Where are things not operating properly? How can we go in and restructure things in such a way that will help us get from here to where you want to go? Super interesting. Let's make it even more practical. So I read in one of your writings that mm -hmm. you as a CFO are ultimately focused on helping law firm owners mm -hmm. make more money. And it doesn't get any simpler than that. So in practical terms, perhaps using an example. How do you get a law firm or law firm owner from point A to point B? And let's say that point A is like a couple million dollars in revenue and they're 
mm-hmm. not pre-tax profit is under 20%. I know I'm using PhD type of method. Funny enough, when you said that, I remember how many lawyers would tell me, I went to law school because I wasn't good at numbers. I've heard I, that saying. No, no. <laughs> prob- probably not all of them, but most of them, right? I've, I've interviewed some incredibly, incredibly number savvy attorneys, law firm owners on this podcast. But but a lot of them would tell me exactly that. They're just like, I went to law school because I didn't want to deal with numbers. So so from $2 million and sub 20% net profit, meaning that you made less than 20% on that $2 million, which is not a great outcome for a professional service company, right? And let's say that they come to you and they're like, I want to get from 2 million to 4 million and I want my profitability to increase to, I know you like to work with thirds, so perhaps a third if that is feasible. So can you talk to us about like how you in your role as a CFO could help a law firm owner accomplish those results? Yeah. So we worked with a firm out of Nebraska. They'd been stuck at about five and a half million for three years. A real action-oriented guy. And his his profit margin was really low. It was single digits. And um and he's because he's so action oriented, he was like, Yeah, this no growth thing is not working for me. So he came to us and we said, All right, where do you want to go? He told us where he wanted to go. And we said, All right, well, the first problem is you don't have the money to grow because you're not profitable enough. So here's what we need to do. First place we looked was the way he was paying his people. He was paying his attorneys improperly. So over the three or four years that we worked with him, I think we rolled out three different, maybe we worked with him for five years, we rolled out three different compensation plans to his attorneys because where they were and where they needed to be were so different that we couldn't do it all in one year. We had to gradually move to where it was. So instead of spending 50% of his revenue on on his people, on payroll. We got that down into the high 30s. We also looked at his marketing and we told her he was spending too much on marketing. And when we went to his marketing people, they couldn't give us any stats. They couldn't give us any numbers on his marketing. And we are all about making data-driven decisions because if we've got the numbers, then we know we can make the right decision. Well, Basically, he had to fire his entire marketing department, and he fired his marketing department, turned it over, and got new people who could give us numbers. And so he could make decisions based on what they said, and he did a lot of other stuff. The new marketing people were fabulous. More clients were coming in the door. We had redone the comp packages. We had realigned the pay with what we wanted his people to do. So more work was moving through the firm. He's going to do, I think, $27 million this year. How many years has it been? Um, I think so. He left us about a year ago. Six years? I think like six years. So he went from no growth for three years, stuck at $5.5 million, to over 5 xing it, like 650% growth. And he has double-digit profit margin. Mm-hmm. 
So this is something that a CFO can do for you. By the way, CFO should not be confused with accountants. Correct. It's a different role. Well, actually, let me say that a number of my CFOs are accountants. Of course. Let's, Let's be really clear here. An accountant is really it, it, it it's a job description that can be applied to a lot of different things mm-hmm. normally when people say accountant they mean your tax accountant that's how most people think about accountant yeah. and we don't do tax mm-hmm. we are what's thought of as a managerial accountant mm-hmm. we are going to help you manage your company in a better way mm-hmm. Let, let, let me try to frame it the best way that I understand the difference between accountants and CFOs. And I know that accountants can do different roles, but in layman's terms, an accountant, more often than not, not a managerial accountant, not a CFO, is someone who looks backwards uh-huh. and counts what happens. A CFO who examines what happened in the past and looks forward and tells you how to make things happen so that they're aligned with your numeric goals, like revenue and profitability. And ultimately, because we all retire at one point or another, either by design or default, but ultimately it's something that doesn't just drive the revenue or the profitability, it drives the value of the law firm. So it's actually a valuable, sellable entity, which Let's be honest, most law firms are not. No. Let me tell you, Sasha, that is coming, that is going to become more and more important. We have already seen a lot more law firms changing hands in the past few years, and there are two things driving it. I think one is there are more law firms being run as a business Mm -hmm. and less as a practice. And two, Deregulation is coming. They have already deregulated in Utah and Arizona. Mm -hmm. So non-attorneys can own law firms in those two states. Uh, Utah has the sandbox. Arizona has the ADS, the alternative business structure. And by doing that, there are, I talked to somebody the other day who said there's one new ADS every week in Arizona. I haven't checked that stat, so don't hold me to it. But a lot of them were being done by private equity firms. They're investing. They're getting ready to buy your firm. But that's great for attorneys because you have the opportunity to build a sellable company now. Yeah. But most attorneys, because they didn't go to a, to a business school. They didn't. Right. And the, the law firm model is such a traditional model. They don't think about their business as a business, but rather as a practice. And I find that that just about every attorney I spoke to, almost every attorney I spoke to, ever. And I get to speak with 200, 250, 150 attorneys, just one-on-one every year. Uh Very, very bright people with incredibly strong legal acumen and fairly weak business acumen. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because that in that industry, unlike most others, there's the highest propensity of self-employed folks. Mm-hmm. So more than half of lawyers are actually self-employed. 
yeah. whether they're a solo or are operating in a partnership that is a small business. So developing that business acumen is probably the best investment or one of the best investments that they can make. But because they don't think about their law firms as a business, unfortunately, most just continue practicing. Well, and, and I had that experience this week. So for two days this week, I sat in a conference room in New Orleans and I helped two law firms merge. And it was really interesting because one was a 75-year-old law firm and there were one partner had already retired. There are two that are going to retire. One's retiring at the end of the year. There was kind of the next generation of partners who are in their 50s. And it was so interesting to watch those in their 70s, 80s going, but that's how we've always done it. And you could see the realization on their face Repeat. that maybe that wasn't the best way to do it. One yeah. of them said, he's like, I wish I was 30 years younger because this is going to be a fun way to run a firm. Yeah. And sure. the guys in their 50s were like, okay, this is awesome. Now, are they going to learn all the business stuff? No, they're doing what so many attorneys can do in that they're bringing in experts on a fractional basis to give them the advice and the help that they need. Yeah. And you're serving them very well. Yeah. I want to explore the subject of private equity firms rolling into the legal field, which is now happening very slowly, but at some point it will definitely pick up steam yeah. as it has happened in some other industries. Yes. So ju just to just to start talking about this topic, because it's so incredibly important, maybe not in the near term, but in the long term, if you are a younger partner or a principal or whatever, or you're looking to start your own firm because you've been working for somebody else for 15 years and you want to branch out on your own, the subject of private equity is very important because once there's big money coming into the industry, what they will do is they will roll up your businesses, meaning they will buy a whole bunch of small law firms. If you are valuable, if you're not valuable, they're not going to buy you. But once they do buy a whole bunch of valuable law firms and roll them under one name, their power to bring in business will demolish whatever you had going. You will be left by picking up the little scraps that will still be available, and it's going to be really hard going. We've seen that in the world of healthcare, mm -hmm. where 30 years ago, there were a lot of private practitioners, and today, most of them are hospitalists. Right. As in, they couldn't compete anymore. For them to make more money, they had to close their business and go work at the hospital. I, you know, how many ads have you seen or gotten for uh, companies like Ment Dental? Do you have that around where you love? We don't, but they know exactly what you're talking it, about. Yeah. The dental industry got deregulated. Yeah. And, and so, you know, in Texas, it's hard to find a dentist that isn't with Ment Dental. Interesting. Um, the veterinary industry mm -hmm. has done that. And yeah. I think there are a lot of lessons that we can learn in the legal industry about what to and not to do. Mm -hmm. And I think we should be watching Arizona for that. But you're absolutely right. Clients are going to be harder to come by. It's going to be more expensive for the average law firm to, to get a client. 
And you're going to have to really set yourself apart in some way from those big behemoth law firms that are going to to arise that are backed by the PE money. Right. So so when I think about that, and if I own a law firm right now, I wouldn't be shaking in my boots, but I would be thinking about how do I create the best business I can while there are no behemoths of competitors here in my field. So for example, like family law or estate planning, like M200 law firms, the largest law firms are not a big competitor to you because they don't care about your five thousand dollar average case value clients. That's just not what they do. But once private equity rolls in and they start buying up your competitors left and right, those that are actually valuable. And what makes them valuable in my opinion, and this is where I want to hear your opinion on this, is their ability to predictably generate cash and do so profitably. Uh So having a machine that produces prospective clients, converts them into retained clients and produces cash is what private equity cares about. They don't care about law. No. It's irrelevant. It's just another business to buy up and crank out more cash on whatever it is that they invest into it. And so I always think about it this way. If you do not have a strong business acumen, if you have a really small law firm and it's not really growing, you need to think about like, this will be the reality potentially 5, 10, 15 years down the road. What are you going to do about it? Because you have a lot of time, but this time shouldn't be wasted. You should think about how to make it the biggest, baddest law firm that you can. And just roll with it because when they will come around, you may be actually in such a good shape. And a friend of mine has done a completely different industry a couple of years ago. He has an HVAC company, HVAC. They do air conditioning, private equity. We're here in Chicago. He has built it for like seven years. Private equity came to him and they're like, how you doing? And he's like, what's up? And they're like, can we take a look at your financials? And he's like, why? And he's like, well, we're buying your competitors. So we're either going to compete against you or you're going to become part of us and you're going to grow faster. And he's like, curious, what would you give me for this thing? And they looked at his financials and he is not an HVAC guy. He doesn't know very much about air conditioning or heating systems, but he's a business guy. He's a partner with technician. Yeah. And they're like, we'll give you 10 mil. And he's like, and he's like, and he's like, I could live with it, but what else? And they're like, we'll also give you a little bit of equity in our very large company so that 20 years from now, and the guy's like, he's my age, he's in his mid forties, 20 years from now, when you're ready to retire, you're going to own quite a few shares of a massive company that you contributed to for the past seven years. And you can stay on board if you'd like to, you know, it's totally up to you. He had a buyout for three years, which is still rolling. It will be complete, I think like later this year. And He's welcome to be the CEO of the company that he sold them because that's what he's been for the past now 10 years. And yeah. he's a very successful guy. And and so if you think, but I'm a lawyer and I want to continue practicing law, that's cool. But you can be an effective CEO of your law firm and be part of that private equity group that's going to potentially help you create generational wealth. Well, and we have a, we're working with a, a firm that's, it's a personal injury firm. And personal injury is the first place that private equity is going. I mean, they're already there yeah. financing. Yeah. And but those are going to be the first firms that they that they buy. And he knows it. And he knows that once they start buying, that the case acquisition cost is going to get exorbitantly high. 
So we're preparing now. We figure we've got five years. I mean, he is going all out on marketing and is stacking as many cases as he can and will for the next five years. So for the next five to seven years, he's basically just pulling in as many cases as he can. He's working with us to make sure the business side of the firm is running really well. And then he's planning on selling. Yeah. Because he will have huge case inventory. His business will run like a top. Yeah. And he will be so attractive because he doesn't want to compete post-private equity money. Very smart. And he knows that because of his practice area, he's going to be on the front lines of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, cool. Law firm, it's not going to be right. as fast. Yeah. I'm very curious because I am a marketer and this is what we do. We said he went all in on marketing, which leads to substantially swollen pipeline of cases. Uh-huh. What does he invest as a percentage of his revenue into acquiring those cases? So he, um, you're going to die when I say this because ready, ready. The heart attack is coming. Um, he has never really done any marketing in the past. (laughs) No, a lot of lawyers don't. And so, um, and because of the type of cases he does, they are highly complex. 99% of them come from other attorneys. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, he spent a whopping 5% this year, which was a huge increase for him. We're looking at 10% next year, which I know you're going, that's nothing. However, for him, it is big chump. It, it is big money. Yeah. And, and we're thinking about, or he's probably thinking about it this way. If he is the magnet for all of those complex cases, what value is it to private equity? And he's not the only magnet. He's not the only magnet. That's the other thing that he's Mm -hmm. he's done is he is teaching and training and building out the bench. So it's not just about him. But, you know, the conversation was, okay, if I put an extra million dollars in marketing this year, what can we accomplish? What can he accomplish with an extra million? This is a huge number for most of our listeners who are small law firm owners. They'll be like a million mm-hmm. into marketing. Huh? And that's what's going to get him to the 10%. Mm-hmm. I got that. And, and his firm is also growing hugely. Mm-hmm. But part of the reason he can do it is he's got a big settlement that's coming in this year. And yeah. we know that that settlement's coming in. And he's had some other good ones. So, you know, he does some things that are great that that we encourage people to do. He has set aside enough money at home to get him to make him feel secure and make his wife and family feel secure for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Let's face it, PI attorneys are giant gamblers. So, yeah, but those are those are educated gambles, right? So they, know they are educated, but it's still a rule. And and their spouses aren't always as big a gambler as they are. So, yeah. So we've taken money off the table there. So the family is feels secure. 
and that we've taken more money off the table to fund the operations of the firm for the next year, right? We've got that sitting in the bank. And then there was actually, there's some more money. So he's like, okay, out of that leftover money, what if we took a million dollars? And um, not sure how it's going to be spent yet, but he's working on that with his marketing team. What does it look like? What will the return be? And of course, we're leaning over their shoulder going, show me the data. <laughs> yeah. Because we like it. I don't want to flush a million dollars. There are a lot of marketing initiatives that can be undertaken that will have no data backing that up. So like, like you cannot build a business case for a lot of social media advertising. It's just brand awareness. Like, how do you measure impact of brand awareness? You can't. And that's fine. But line item out, we're yeah. we're putting this much into brand awareness. Yeah. Okay. And, and this is why I'm in love with what we do. And this is not a plug for my company, but this is the reason why I got into search marketing because search marketing is incredibly, or it can be, incredibly transparent. It's like the shortest path between two points of a straight line in search marketing is exactly that. So if you have a prospect, who is looking for a lawyer who will do a malpractice suit on their behalf or on behalf of their family, and they find you through Google, there's very little ambiguity in that prospect coming to you through Google. Mm -hmm. You will see how your marketing and advertising dollars are coming back in signed retainer letters. Absolutely. So, so, but 10%, this is like what surprised me, or it doesn't surprise me. I know a lot of lawyers actually do not spend money on marketing or, or underspend, underinvest in marketing. I know you're a big fan of books and you, you want to share a couple of books that were references and books that I, that I just finished reading. This is my new reference book. It's called The King of Growth. I had the author of this book on my podcast some time ago, Lewis Scott. So his firm currently, as of the time of the podcast, which was a couple of months ago, that's $40 million in revenue. And it's growing by leaps and bounds on a quarterly basis. And he outlined the formula in his book. And he's like, man, we invest 25% of our revenue into marketing. And most people will talk on that number and be like, 25% that you're insane is like, well, it all depends on how much growth you want to have. Mm-hmm. Right. If you want to grow like most others, you will invest like single digit percentage or none and hope to grow organically, you know, or maybe like 10%, 12%, but it would be low. If you really want to grow and create a sizable like eight figure law firm, he's like, this is what we've done. And they open the side business because neither him nor his partner practice law anymore because they have so many people working for them. They're like, wouldn't it be fun to coach other lawyers how to do this? So they started a consulting group for other lawyers where they're like, here's what you do. We'll show you within three years just how much you're, like the growth will blow your mind. Yeah. But it requires a bit of courage. And in Sasha, I think that's that's true. I actually have a client I was on. I got an email yesterday. I've got to respond to him. I haven't responded yet. That said, oh my gosh, I just listened to you on whatever podcast and you said that people shouldn't spend more than 10%. That law firms should have been... That's what I read in that article. That's what caught my attention. I'm like, now, we're going to debate this one. And he's like, I spend more than that. Like, does that apply to all law firms? And he is a personal injury firm. And, you know, it's like, what? What are you talking about? 
when I put those percentages down, they're a starting point, right? Everything needs to be customized. Is it appropriate to only spend 10%? And it, you are absolutely right when you're talking about Luis and what he's doing and his 25% growth or is 25% spend to get that big growth. If you are making a reasoned decision to spend more than that, if you are looking at where you are spending money other places Mm -hmm. and you are willing to reinvest money, take money out of your pocket, so instead of getting a 30% 30% profit margin, you're willing to take, you know, a 15% profit margin and put that other 15% mm-hmm. back into marketing to get to your 25% to grow the firm and do this on a short-term basis on a, you know, for the next three years, we're going to grow this so that we get to this level and then we can back off. Because 30% at this level is way more than 30% at this level. So I'm willing to take the hit now mm-hmm. rather than take the hit there. That's yeah. fine. But, you know, that 10% is kind of the status quo. It's not a heavily aggressive growing number. Well, there's nothing left for us to debate now. Okay. <laughs> so that's when I read the article. I'm like, but 10%? I know there was like a little caveat underneath it. Like if you want to grow faster, but like I always, because so all lawyers are in the bucket of professional service providers Uh and I'm looking at like, you're looking at marketing investment as a client acquisition cost or investment into acquiring clients. And because we work with so many different firms, we know that it will cost you between 10 and 25% to get a client for search. And the variable there is your location meaning how competitive that geographical market is and your average case value. That's it. So if you do PI in Miami, it's going to cost you a lot more money to get a client than if you do estate planning in Boise. And and that's true. And we just want to be looking at how can we optimize. At mm-hmm. what point are we getting more clients are we getting clients at, I'm going to totally make up a number, $7 a client versus $12 a client? And if we redirected some money from the $12 option to the $7 option, which I know are totally unrealistic numbers, but I'm just throwing them out, then why wouldn't we do that? Of course. Unless we've hit the maximum number that we can get on the $7 option. Mm-hmm. What I don't like are the people that just throw money at marketing mm-hmm. with no plan, and they don't know how much they're spending, and they're spending 30%, and they have no clue. Yep. And then they come and they whine to me that they're not making any money. Yep. Well, no, because you're spending 30 or 40% to get the case, and then you're spending 50% on your people to work the case. So now we're at ninety percent. Seen that, and and you got to run your you get, you got to pay your rent and your phone bill and all of that. Yeah, yeah, you're going to start to death. 
I always think about it this way, no plan. And from the marketing side, no transparency and no accountability equals disaster. Yes, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm perfectly happy for our clients to try something new and to spend the money and, and to do it. But I want to know, what's the plan? We're going to spend this and it's going to return. What is the anticipated return? So I had a, a client in Florida and she did some TV commercials family law. And this was, I don't know, six, eight years ago. And it was $5,000 a month. And I said, okay, uh, local cable. <laughs> As you're looking at me, like, how is it that cheap? No, not 5,000, 10,000 a month. And I was like, all right, what's the return? And she's like, well, we should be getting this many calls, they have to see it X number of times. We should be getting, you know, like three calls in the first month and this many calls in the second month and this many calls in the third month. I'm like, okay, if we're not at that third month number, we're cutting it off because that's, you know, what they've committed to. Well, at the end of month three, we have had two people come in for paid consultations for a whopping $600. And we spent $30,000 to get $600 in revenue. I'm like, not working. We had an agreement, three months. Well, I mean, that salesperson must have been really good because they convinced her to go on for two or three more months. And she got like one more consultation that did not convert. We got to have a plan and we've got to have a circuit breaker. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. I'm not an expert in broadcast marketing and advertising, but when, but, but what, what I do see is there's little evidence to support what I'm about to say, other than my conversations with lawyers who do a lot of broadcast advertising. When I talk about broadcast advertising, that includes radio and TV and billboards and advertising on bus stops and advertising on actual buses. So. They told me that to blanket a market is not reach substantial awareness in the marketplace of your brand as the go-to law firm. You need to allocate $1 million a month. Yes. So per market, what we're talking about large markets, right? Not, I'm going to use example of Boise, which I really love. I really love Boise, but I live in Chicago, like Chicago says market. Uh -huh. 10 million people, if you want to get brand awareness, you're uh -huh. dropping about a million dollars a month. So this uh -huh. is this is the domain of very large PI law firms like Morgan & Morgan uh -huh. and Lerner & Rowe. Like guys who, Morgan & Morgan, John Morgan is very public about his budget. He is like, 2021, we did $1 billion in revenue. We spent $160 million on advertising across all channels. Mm -hmm. Oh, so he can drop $14 million a month on advertising. And that buys him a lot of brand awareness. A lot of brand awareness. Most lawyers do not generate billion dollars in revenue. There's Glenn Lerner, who is, I met him in person. He told me in person, like what it is that he spent on advertising. It's in the tens of millions of dollars. So when you go to certain parts of Chicago, he's everywhere. Absolutely everywhere, right? Because he can, and he probably cannot measure the impact of those advertising dollars for at least two, three years. So if you have that kind of spending power, that lasts. 
But if you need to have direct response, three months of TV advertising. Don't get started. Don't yeah. start. It's nothing. It's peanut. It's peanuts for the TV station, and it's a devastating loss to you because you're out of thirty thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars. Just goes out the window to dig out of that. Yeah, that's like if you're funding your kids' college education, that could be 40 percent of it. Yeah, that that was a year of college. Yeah, so that sucks. But okay, so here's what I'm learning. But by, by us having this conversation, it sounds like when you partner up with your law firm clients, it's really a partnership where you take no equity in their business, nope. but you bring a lot of business acumen to the table where it's usually badly needed. Yes. And because we specialize in law firms, because we've worked with so many we can tell you what's normal in a PI firm. Mm-hmm. We can tell you what's normal in a family law firm. We can tell you what's normal in an immigration firm. That makes we, know, great sense. we know not just law firms, but we know down to specific practice areas what it should look like. We can tell you the difference between how a family law firm should run and how a PI firm should run. We can tell you the difference in in marketing spend. We can tell you the difference in the way you're going to motivate the employees. We can tell you the difference in the way you're going to structure the the your org chart and who yeah. people answer to. Yeah. So you're really like a partner that every law firm owner should want to have but don't have. Because lawyers partner up with other lawyers. That's right. They partner up with other people mm-hmm. who, but, who who haven't had yeah. and shouldn't have mm-hmm. the, the business math and accounting education that we business have. Like and and it's, yeah. it's not that these attorneys can't learn it. Mm-hmm. They have again. They're they plenty smart, Sasha. So, so lear- learning is one thing, but knowing what you know is a different thing, right? So, well, it, they could learn it, but it's a waste of their time. But even if it wasn't, imagine like you've been doing this. Cathedral Capital has been around for ten years, if I'm not mistaken. You started in 2013. So, have you worked with law firms before you started Cathedral Capital, or has it only been ten years? No, I worked with law firms before that. Okay, so how many law firms? How many balance sheets, income statements, cash flow statements, et cetera? How many of these conversations have you had in over a decade? Thousands. Thousands. So there is not a single attorney who is a practicing lawyer or a managing partner at the law firm who has had thousands of conversations about business structure, financial structure, and operations of a law firm. It doesn't exist. So so just learning what you know is one thing, but having the experience and that level of expertise is a completely different thing. That's why... When I think about, like, I do not know what your services cost. I assume that it's substantial, but the ROI should be like mind blown. For, for the guy who went from five and a half million to 27 million in six years, the ROI is probably in the tens of thousands of percent or hundreds of thousands of percent, I assume. Right. But for most, like, like what's what's the ROI, if you know? Um, three, three year timeline. A question that I can't answer off the top of my head. <laughs> We're actually gotcha. working on a database that's <laughs> out 
But you know, it is wor- it it is worthwhile, mm-hmm. um, mainly because we bring so much more to the bottom line. But even more than that, it is the peace of mind that the owners get because they have someone there with them, helping them make the decisions, that knows their firm inside and out, that has seen it before, that knows what the right move is, and they're not alone anymore. Mm -hmm. You know the expression, it's lonely at the top? Mm -hmm. It's lonely and scary to own a law firm. Mm -hmm. Even if you have partners. You have partners because they don't know any more than you do. Right. So there's no complementary skill set or expertise. It's the same skill set with the same expertise. Yeah. Yeah. So there are no no answers. You're still looking at a balance sheet going, I don't know what this is telling me. Mm -hmm. I sat in a room with, you know, a 55-year attorney this week, and and he told me he didn't understand his balance sheet. Yeah. How big is this firm? Mm, they'll do, I don't know, eight figures next year. Those balance sheets can get pretty complicated. So, I mean, what we were talking about wasn't complicated. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, but he didn't, and, and it's not his fault. Yeah. That's why, ladies and gentlemen, you need to get a very, very business-minded expert CFO is going to be your non-equity partner at your table, virtually, who will be helping you make much better decisions so that your financial future and your retirement and potentially generational wealth looks very different. How do people How do people connect with you? I think the best way is our website. Mm-hmm. Go to cathcap.com, C-A-T-H-C-A-P.com. You can learn more about us. If you want to book a call with me, you can book a call with me, and and I'm happy to chat with you to to learn more about your firm and just give you my opinion for an hour. What are the right two, three questions that law firm owners should start off by asking you or should start off conversations with you by? So the first question I always ask is, what, what made you make this appointment? What, what, no, 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 no. What, what questions should they ask you? Because I think that most of us are not qualified to hire other professionals because we do not actually like know what the right questions are to ask. So what questions should they be asking you? What questions should they be asking me? I think it is um, much more about, you know, that's a hard one. The question I get asked a lot is, what are we going to do first? What are we going to attack? What's the plan? And I can't answer that question because we customize it for every client. We're not a program where we're going to do this in the first Mm -hmm. month, this in the second month, and this in the third month because you may not need that. You may need something else. But I think more than anything, it's do you have experience working with law firms, with my kind of law firm? And it's also, do you feel comfortable with that person? Because as one of my first clients said, he's like, I'm going to have to show you my underwear drawer. And I'm like, um, Dan, yeah. that, that, that I, I, I don't get what you're saying. He's like, 
You know that underwear that's stuffed in the back of the drawer that has like holes in it and maybe some skid marks? I'm like, oh my God, I'm turning around looking at his wife going, you need to buy him some new underwear apparently. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to have to show you that. And I'm like, I'm going with your metaphor here. But yeah, you're going to have to show me that. Mm-hmm. We're totally non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. You know, I truly believe that people make the best decisions they can at the time with the information they have. Of course. Yeah. You know, if we went back and did it again, would we make the same decision? Don't know. But this is this is where we are. So you need someone that you feel comfortable enough with to to open up your underwear drawer because you're going to have to tell them everything. So ask yourself, do I feel comfortable with this person? Do they know my practice area? Will they be a good partner with me? And yeah. how much support are they going to give me? Are they going to give me the support I need? Or are they trying to sell me something? Are they trying to fit me into their box? Awesome. This has been a great interview. Ladies and gentlemen, Brooke Lively, Cathedral Capital. I think if you own, and I assume that most people who listen, watch this, uh, you probably own your own law firm. You owe it to yourself to just at least call and talk and see what is possible. Because as you mentioned earlier, like we've always done things a certain way, bringing in the right partner can make all the difference. Steve Wozniak was building computers in his garage, and he would have never become what he has become if Steve Jobs did not appear at the certain point and become, became his partner. Well, and on the point, point, Steve Jobs wouldn't have become who he was without Absolutely Steve Wozniak. Absolutely true. Well, there you go. Brooke, thank you so much. Thank you, Sasha. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Grow Law Firm podcast. If you liked the ideas shared in this episode, help a fellow lawyer out by sharing a link to the episode. This episode is powered by the team of experts in client attraction, growlawfirm.com. Do you want a complimentary growth plan for your law firm? Request it at growlawfirm.com slash blueprint.